I want to, um, well, uh, any must-say follow-up comments about what we've been through to this point? Get the microphone. Uh, the one in the blue shirt. It seems like all the hindrances are forms of grasping, right? Are forms of grasping. Right. The hindrances are forms of grasping. Aren't, I mean, aren't they not? Are they not? Um, the, each one of them, if you, except for, it's a little harder to see sloth and torpor, but the, right, doubt is a form of grasping at maybe some kind of fear or, and worry. And I just wondered if, what you might say about that, if anything. Sure. Um, so there's a kind of a, there's a comment that, oh, all the defilements seem to be some form of grasping. Uh, generally, we say that the defilements fall into the category of aversion, greed, and delusion. And indeed, those all can be seen as grasping something, grasping or craving. Many, uh, I mean, the obvious greed is a form of grasping. Aversion can be uh, grasping pleasantness and therefore having aversion to unpleasantness, whether it's mental or physical, and the grasping of a sense of self rather than seeing the impersonal nature of self. That's a confusion or delusion. So that the, uh, the antidote, if you will, or the, the development of mind that addresses all of them is letting go. Some holding on can be let go of intentionally. Sometimes you don't, you see you're, you're having an argument with somebody and you're caught in a snit and, and you can see, oh, forget it, what do, I, what do I care? You know, and you can let go and you can really just let go of uh, through just seeing clearly the suffering and having the in, clear intention to let go and stop suffering. But a lot of, a lot of letting go cannot happen through intention. For example, we'll, when you're observing your mind and you notice that your mind is obsessing about something, it's obsessing with anxiety or worry or fear, anger or something. Even though you have the intention to let go, like, I'd like to stop worrying, I'd like to stop feeling anxious, I'd like to stop being angry, stop being jealous, whatever, you know, and you intend to. You can't, intention is not powerful enough to let go of that level of grasping. Okay, so that level of grasping can only be addressed by what I was talking about earlier, samadhi, or the continuity of awareness, collectedness of mind. So by developing the continuity of awareness, you can keep the mind from grasping these obsessive defilements. Not through intention, but through the development of the, the continuity of mind. But even then, 
when you let go of the continuity of the chosen meditative object, all the defilements are still there. And this this would then require even samadhi is not strong enough, is not a strong enough practice to cut through some level of grasping. Hmm. Meaning the the level of we're kind of moving into top chapter seven, I guess. <laughs> it's just kind of happening naturally, but we can decide to go there or not. But um, because there is the subtlest level of defilement is defilement which has not yet arisen, but is kind of a potential in the mind that given the right conditions, it'll arise. How are we going to uproot or how are we going to address that level of potential defilement? It hasn't arisen yet so the intention can't address it. It hasn't arisen yet so uh, concentration or samadhi or continuity of awareness can't deal with it. Something else needs to be trained. Some, some other training of mind, a much more subtle but more powerful training of mind necessary to address that level of defilement. We'll get to that. You know the, you know the uh, 12 links of dependent origination? I don't mean to go into another whole... <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> but, you know, the, <clears throat> the past conditions the present. How you respond or react to the present conditions the future. Okay? That's kind of like the law of karma. Past conditions the present. How you react or respond to the present conditions the future. Okay? In the present moment, you know, conditions arise due to past and current conditions. Things happen. And so we experience the body and the mind as it is. How we respond to that, how the untrained mind responds to that is with craving, grasping, and action, or karma bhava, I guess it's called, huh? Craving and craving, grasping, and then karma, action. The trained mind doesn't respond react to the way things have arisen, it sees clearly, oh, this is pleasant, this is unpleasant. And they sees the causes that have given rise to this condition. It doesn't crave this experience if it's pleasant. It doesn't crave its opposite if it's unpleasant. So, if there's no craving, there's no grasping. If there's no grasping, there's no action. If there's no action, there's no future karma. But that's another whole day. Of instruction, and we could spend the whole day on or more on dependent origination. But for those of you who know that teaching, that's where grasping comes in. You see, you just pull one thread of the Dharma, it's like the whole thing unwinds. If we had the rest of our lives, we could just sit here and explore. And in fact, we do have the rest of our lives. I mean, you know. Any other, uh, yeah, another comment? About? I, I might have been um, missing in here, but I was wondering if you covered the stages of insight knowledge, and I missed it, or if that was the, <laughs> uh, the, the, the characteristics and, and so forth. 
Um, and also, I wondered if you knew about Pabunka's uh, 16th century, what is his name, um, the Tibetan, and, and comparing the stages of insight in the Theravadan to, if you happen to know the, the Tibetan system. Okay. I do not know the Tibetan system. And who, Pabanka or something? No, I don't know. Uh, 16, yeah, I think it's 16th century Pabanka, and it's the stages of enlightenment from their perspective. I don't, I, I don't know about that. I haven't, I haven't heard it. Um, Maybe I'll get you a copy of that. Just, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not actually promoting it. I'm just yeah. asking, you know. <laughs> I, I haven't heard that one. Um, hmm. I haven't talked about the stages of insight knowledge yet much. We could, if it's of interest. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But let me just let me just solicit any other comments about what went on this morning, any uh, earlier in the day, any other follow-up comments, questions that just to uh, no, okay. So, should we move into stages of insight knowledge? No. Someone shaking his head no. Someone is shaking their head yes. Yes, and someone is saying, oh yeah, what the heck? And what is it? Okay. No, this is a good question. The question is, oh, should we know about this? And is it going to... Is it going to cause us to grasp after them? This is a very this is a this is an important question. This is not an insignificant question, and let me give you a little history about it. This book that um, that I've translated from, or that we've had translated and we're editing, called the the uh, Manual of Insight Meditation, uh, in part has not been made available in the West for that very reason. You know. Because there's information in it which may, uh, which can be uh, kind of grasped and it can cause, and it does, it has, for those of us who have had access to it, it can cause a lot of uh, striving in one's practice. It can cause striving in this way, that you read about certain kinds of experience as being indicative of certain levels of insight or knowledge, insight knowledge, and then you it is quite easy to look for those kinds of experience in your meditation or to interpret insignificant meditative experience as much more profound and significant than they really are. So there is a danger to acquiring to prematurely acquiring this knowledge. On the other hand, there's a lot of people who know nothing about the progress of insight. They don't, they don't even know there's anything. It's just thing as a progression of insights. And, you know, and in fact, I didn't know when I first started practicing with Upandita. And, you know, at the time I was doing, the first time he came to America was in 1984, and he was teaching a three-month retreat for 20 people. And I didn't know anything about stages of, ins- stages of insight. I was just practicing you know he had been led to believe that everybody those 20 people were all teachers very experienced yogis they were all teachers or exceptional students who were expected to be teachers i happened to get invited because i was the manager of the retreat center where it was being held at the time not because i was a good yogi i was 
believe me, I was not in that category at all. So I didn't know anything. You know, and I was practicing and going in to report to him every day, two o'clock. I was having a, a very difficult time. And, you know, at one point I just, you know, I, I said to him something like, or he was asking me something, and I said, geez, I don't know, I thought you just practice and practice, and, you know, one day you just pop, got enlightened. He just roared with laughter. <laughs> he just, he just, he just broke out in, in this huge laughter, like, you know, almost like, you gotta be kidding. You know, don't you know anything about the progress of insight? And I said, no, I, I don't, what do you mean? I just thought you practice till you got enlightened. Well, you do practice till you get enlightened, but there is a progression of knowledge that one gains as one practices that indicates that you're moving along the path. And, you know, now let me just say that this progress of insight is very well mapped. It is mentioned in the Buddha's sutras, not as a single progression, but the Buddha mentions this insight and that insight, different insights in different places in the sutras. And what has happened over the years in different commentarians and more fully developed by Mahasi Sayadaw is a compilation of all these insights in the order in which they occur. And then the great accomplishment of Mahasi Sayadaw is to uh, track hundreds of thousands of students as they experience these different stages of knowledge and to codify them. And so he's identified these uh, different experiences and different understandings and different ways that people articulate these different insights as they occur. And so there's this very detailed map of the progress of insight, the stages of insight knowledge as one experiences them both in experience and understanding uh, in the course of practice from day one till full enlightenment. Do you want to know what that is? Be careful. Be careful. Because if you want to know all the details, that's greed. And it can cause a lot of attachment, cause a lot of striving. On the other hand, if you don't want to know, you may be also impeding your understanding from developing. And so... Just suffice it to say that the first, gen, first and second and probably third generations of Western teachers have chosen not to teach the progress of insight. Generally, it's, we all know it. You know, we all know the progress of insight. We've all had access to it you know, after our practice, and, and we all know it pretty well. And some of us monitor students based on the progress of insight, not exclusively, but partially, just as another way of monitoring uh, and so there's 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 great respect for it, but there's not an exclusive reliance on it. So let me just say that it is available, and in this book there will be an extensive uh, descriptions of it from a theoretical point of view, from a practical point of view, and then uh, a whole chapter, chapter six, on how to monitor your own practice in terms of the progress of insight. You might not want to read it. Frankly, you might not want to read it. But on the other hand, I've talked with the senior teachers in the tradition. I've talked with others who study the tradition. I've talked with Upandita extensively about this. Should we, should we have this material translated, edited, and made available to the general public of practitioners in the West? 
and the consensus is now we should. Huh? Partly because there's so what what some of us believe there's so much wrong information going around about what is practice, what is the goal of practice, what is the you know experience of practice, and there's there's a lot of misunderstanding going around. And so this will just be you know um, <clears throat> uh, more more material for those for people to consider. Some people will read it and say, what a bunch of hogwash. You know, Buddha didn't say this. I don't believe it. Other people will say, God, this is the map. I've got I to I gotta find these in my experience. And they'll both be, uh, you know, uh, damaging their own, their own possibilities. Then there will be some who will say, yeah, well, maybe I'm, still, I'm just practicing with my own mind and body and we'll see. You know, and that's probably a more balanced uh, relationship to it. But... Believe me, there are students who've, been, who've, who've had access to a description of the progress of insight and then have suffered tremendously for five, <clears throat> ten years trying to make it happen. So, you know, you've got to be careful. On the other hand, I know a few students who, you know, had some access to it, kind of read it, kind of got a, got a glimpse of the path and practiced very well without being bothered by it and it would really help them. Who can know? You gotta look at your own mind. Yeah. I don't hear it. Okay. Um, so I just have a question about this. In the view that some we've heard about scientists looking for a result and then they get that result. I just have this question about whether or not an attachment by the teachers can be formed that this is the path and this is the way and this is the, you know, and that that can also limit what might really be a path for a specific student or that there might actually be other paths that they haven't seen. Do you know what I'm saying? Are you following me? Yeah. So that in some way that it itself becomes an attachment in the mind, a gra- you know, like we're talking about the students grasping, but also the teachers grasping, this is the way. Yeah. And, you know, I've heard other people say there's not only one way. So I guess I just want, would love to hear you sound like you're very open about this. And, I, and I, the, way I would, the way I would comment on that is that A lot of how people talk about their practice is conditioned by how they hear the instruction and how they hear of the Dharma. And in Burma, where people might go to the Mahasi Center, Mahasi Meditation Center, and listen to Mahasi's description of practice and stages, and they practice that way and maybe practice successfully that way and accurately, then fine, they use that common language. Here in the West, we have access to just a, such a wide range of language. Um, different people are going to talk about their practice in very different ways. Um, and there's the, there's the whole psychological dimension, there's a spiritual dimension, there's the insightful dimension, there's, there's just so much different, so much um, variety in the way that people might talk about their experience that there, it really isn't possible. <coughs> for a teacher to kind of, ex- um, well, let's just say they'd have a very, a very limited student base if they uh, 
insisted on the language exclusivity of their teaching. You know, so I find that most teachers are are able to uh, understand students' practice from many different perspectives, not just from the progressive insight. But I think that any student who who practices well for very long will have recognizable stages of insight. And the the teacher may or may not recognize it. It may or may not be helpful for them to to do that. But if someone is practicing well, they'll, they'll go through the stages of insight. But you don't have to hold it as a map. Uh, you know, you know, if you if you have a map of uh, Italy of all the uh, you know pizzerias that you want to you know the best pizzerias in in Italy, you might you know take that map and find the best pubs accidentally and talk about that. So, nevertheless, you'd still get to see Italy. Same way with the with the, the map, you might have the map of the stages of insight, not use it, but see other things along the way. And still progress and reach the goal. So, yeah, microphone. <laughs> um, two things. One, I, I think it uh, would be useful to know that it's not necessary to have a theoretical understanding of the stages of insight in order to go through them. Uh, several people that I know that knew absolutely nothing about the stages of insight simply practiced under the guidance of a really good teacher who was qualified to guide them. And it was amazing to me to watch, you know, who had a lot of theoretical knowledge, to watch them experientially go through these stages in a classical sequence, knowing absolutely nothing about them and actually not being instructed to the te- for the, by the teacher to look for them, mm-hmm. but simply reporting to the teacher what they were seeing. Yes, yeah. that's true. I want to I affirm that, that mm-hmm. people who, who know nothing of the stages of insight, if they practice and describe their experience carefully, can often be tracked and can go, we'll, we'll, we'll just go right through. We'll, you'll see that they do, in fact, touch on all these different uh, kinds of knowledge, if you will. Yeah. yeah, and then the second comment uh, that in my own experience over the years of, of looking at stages of insight and tracking experiential uh, practice of people, um, I, I've kind of come to the conclusion that that stages of insight, you know, in the West we you know we tend to think of stages and accomplishment and things like that, and the understanding that I've come to regarding stages of insight is that they're not these um, mystical states. They're simply that things always are the way that they are, that the Buddha taught impermanence, and the Buddha taught unsatisfactoriness of the nature of things, and that as the mind becomes more clear through the practice and more concentrated, more able to see deeply, it simply increasingly sees more clearly or comes to know more clearly the way that things are. And it's possible to divide this uh, progressive clarification of seeing into stages, mm-hmm. uh, which is useful for guiding people, 
but that what's actually happening is simply the mind simply becoming more clear and seeing more clearly and more deeply the way that things always have been, are now everywhere and always will be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, that's true. Thanks, Ron. And in addition, Mahasi Sayadaw himself says in this book, uh, there's a lot that's listed here that students will never experience. And there's a lot of experience that students have that is never that, that, that he's not writing about. And so everyone has their own unique experiences. It's true. But when you take the collective experience of hundreds of thousands of people, you can kind of get a, a range of, you know, experiences and behaviors and, and understandings uh, at, at different stages. And, and maybe, fi- well, I say finally, I don't think anything's ever final, but a further and additional uh, comment is it is almost impossible, almost impossible, let's say 99% impossible to know where you yourself are on the stage of, on the, on the progression of insight. That's it. You, you, you just can't evaluate yourself. You just, no way. So the teacher can do it, can watch, but, uh, so that, that just makes it that much more complicated. So have we run out of time yet? Or do we actually have to talk about this? <laughs> The, uh, the first level of insight, and I'm not going to go through all of them, I'm going to give you some, some broad categories. The first level of insight is to clearly understand that in each moment there is an experience being known. An experience being known. Experience being known. Experience being known. This is called Nama Rupa. Nama is the knowing of Rupa, the known object. So that you know, it doesn't really qualify as Vipassana yet, but it's a knowledge, it's an understanding that has to be developed through continuity of awareness. And that is, uh, well, let's say, not easy to do. It takes an extraordinary continuity of awareness to do that. So, let's just say that that kind of knowledge, based on your own experience, but based on your own deeply personal, whatever, however you, uh, however it happens, uh, it's one, it's through the continuity of one's attention. Uh, subsequent to that, there is a, uh, an understanding that gradually grows. And this is, these understandings are not like single moments of experience. It's just like, Oh, you begin to get it. Oh, this is the way it is. You know, like like uh, Ron was saying, it's like your understanding. Oh, this is the way things are. Just grows, you know, with repeated experience and repeated just kind of immersion in the, into the stream of awareness uh, as it just kind of flows on. And the 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 kind of the second uh, understanding which kind of emerges is this is all happening by cause and effect. It's all just happening by cause and effect. You know, it's not that personal. It's just things give rise to other things. Different causes give rise to different effects. And so you begin to get, you begin to see how impersonal it all is. 
With that comes the understanding that, um, and this is the, the beginning of the third understanding, you begin to understand that things are impermanent. You begin to see things arise and pass away. They rise and pass away. They rise and pass away. You also begin to really deeply personally understand the truth of dukkha. You begin to really, it's not just like, oh, my body aches because I've been sitting for a while. You really start to see the pervasiveness of dukkha in the mind, in the body, in the world, in the past, in the future, throughout the universe, if you will. And it's not because you're thinking about it, it's because you're experiencing it that way. Mahasi Zayadar mentions in his just in his initial instructions, he says, you will come upon, almost for sure, you'll come upon unbearable pain, unbearable heat, unbearable itchiness, unbearable tormenting states of mind. You, they'll just, it'll just drive you crazy. This is normal. This is normal. If you don't come across it, you're not progressing very well. So, and he's saying, you, you would definitely come across this. To gain this knowledge of the, the understanding of dukkha, you, you will have to experience this. Now, most of us are going to need a teacher to encourage us. To not think, oh my God, I got a disease. I must be doing something wrong. I got to shift my posture. I, gotta, I you know, something. No, this, this is, this is the way it is. You know, but it's only being experienced in this particular way because of the degree of concentration. If you improve your concentration, you'll get through that and you'll, you'll be on to other things. You won't be, you won't be stuck there. But if you get stuck there trying to figure it out and get rid of it and explain it and take care of it medically and otherwise, then you'll never progress beyond that. So, it's, it's opening to the truth of dukkha. It's also beginning to uh, understand the anatta, the impersonal nature of it all, and really seeing how impersonal it is. <coughs> so, first, first knowledge is understanding, you know, mind and matter, or uh, objects being known in each moment. The second is a conditionality that things happen due to cause and effect. And the third understanding where we begin insight is opening the door to really understanding the three characteristics. Things are impermanent, things are unsatisfactory, things are, let's say, impersonal. Then, in order, you know, as you keep practicing and you keep seeing things in this way, uh, the, the mind really picks up, the mindfulness really picks up speed and you begin to understand that, wow, the speed of occurrences in the mind is phenomenal. Things are arising and passing away in the mind much faster than you could ever keep up with them. I mean, it's just, you know, dozens per second of things happening. And the mind is knowing them really fast. And with this, uh, now, by, by, at this point, the hindrances have been put aside for some sustained periods of time. And uh, what, what arises at this stage of insight is what is called the corruptions of insight, more popularly known in the, in the, in the lingo as pseudo nibbana, because it's here that all of the wow, wow, woo, woo stuff of spiritual practice happens, bliss and seeing auras and you know powers of mind and fantastic concentration and piercing clarity 
and you know ecstasy and unshakable i mean just this super uh, confident uh, states of mind all these things come up at different in different ways uh, at this stage of mind and if you read the lives of saints and things like that you'll you'll see how they'll talk about these kinds of experiences and how you know they they think oh this is god or they or, or the the classic definition of it in in this tradition is you will think you got enlightened. You will think this is enlightenment. And that's the very nature of, of this kind of experience. You'll think, this is such a good experience. I'm sure even my teacher hasn't had this experience. <laughs> and you will believe that. You'll believe it. I'm telling you. If you practice, it'll happen. And that's what you'll believe about. When I was told this, I thought, no, no. <laughs> Not me. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna have that kind of experience, and I'll never believe it when it happened. You know what? None of us are any different. It's gonna happen, just that way. <clears throat> Happens to everybody. We could say, you will believe it. If you don't have a teacher that's been through that stage, think about that. You think you've gotten enlightened, and your teacher doesn't know the difference. You're going to stop practice right there. But you're a long way from enlightenment. A long way. You're just caught. Okay, so the practice, this, at this point in practice, it's called clarifying what is the path and what is not the path. Indulging in that is not the path. Recognizing that this is just another impersonal, unsatisfactory, impermanent experience, that's the path. If you keep doing that, then you'll stabilize. The, the continuity of awareness will stabilize to just see the arising and passing away of Phenomena. That's uh, attaining or reaching this understanding is uh, difficult, uh, not impossible. Uh, it's a milestone. It's a major milestone in the practice. Uh, the next step, and and at this point, when when the mind has, when you've gotten through all this phantasmagorical stuff, you know all this woo woo wow wow of spiritual practice. You've kind of gotten through that. Then the mind settles down and it's just kind of noticing the way things are rising and passing away incessantly. And practice feels very good. You feel a lot of confidence. It's really smooth. You have a lot of equanimity. You just feel like, hey, wow, this is a cruise. And, and you can just sit for long periods of time. And there's a lot of equanimity. And it's just great. You know, and you think, wow, what could be better than this? But the next level of insight is a real shocker because the experience is as if your practice falls completely apart. And you can't remember from one minute to the next, what am I supposed to be doing? What am I noticing? There's no, you know, you feel like you have no confidence, no equanimity, no mindfulness, no concentration. Everything is destroyed. You just can't, you can't see, you, you can't believe that this is good practice. And it's terrifying. You think, I've lost it. And you will try to get back the kind of experience you had before. If you do, you're going backwards. This is where you need a teacher. This is actually called the rolling up the mat stage of practice. It's where, if you, if, even if you have a teacher, you want to roll up the mat and go home. Because you, you, you don't want to go through this. You know? And if you, do have, if you don't have a teacher, you will definitely stop here. Definitely. You won't go on. You can't believe that going through this 
is, is the right practice. You'll go back to the comfortable, familiar, good, good practice that you've experienced before. But true practice in the path is through this. So you have to keep, you have to learn how to get through this kind of experience. And it doesn't get better. It actually gets worse. I won't go into the details, but let me just say that for us to come to truly understand the truth of dukkha, that things are painful, that things are oppressive, and that things <coughs> experience uh, causes us to feel vulnerable and insecure. You're going to have to feel, knowingly, with utter equanimity, pain, oppressiveness, and insecurity. And uh, there's no fooling either. You know, you can't you can't pretend. You know, because uh, you 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 you'll have to experience some some pretty strong dukkha, not pretty strong, overwhelming dukkha, until you understand it that this is this is the way things are. But our efforts to understand that this is the way things are, dukkha, gradually is strengthening equanimity. Gradually, all throughout this period of practice, we're strengthening our capacity to not react. And that's what's, that's what's going to pull you through in the end, is that equanimity is going to get so strong that in the end, you can experience dukkha unshakably. You won't react. No matter how oppressive or how painful or how overwhelming or whatever it gets, how insecure or fearful it gets, no reaction. Not because you don't see it or because you don't care. It's because your equanimity has finally gotten strong enough. And when that equanimity is strong enough, then you can see anything. No matter how much dukkha it is, no matter how fast it's changing, no matter how impersonal it is, you can see it and you won't flip out. You won't get caught in a defiled reaction. That's what I mean. <clears throat> when that level of equanimity is um, stable and strong, then there's just a, just a sitting back and watching it all go by. And it goes by because we're able to let go. Not because of intention. You've let you, the intention to let go happened a long time ago. And it's not just because of con- <coughs> concentration. Because that letting go of concentration happened way back at the arising and passing away. Now the letting go is due to understanding. You truly understand this is nothing to grasp. Nothing. Nothing is worth grasping. And so the mind doesn't grasp anything. It's not that the mind has to let go of what it is grasped to. The mind sees everything and chooses not to grasp. Not to grasp it. When the mind is not grasping for, you know, for moment after moment, for long periods of time, it's letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go, letting go. Sometime, or at some point, the mind may let go of, uh, let's say, all known thing. No, the mind may let go of all conditioned phenomena. And access what is called the unconditioned. Nibbana. Only by letting go 
You don't grab Nibbana. It's by letting go of all known, all conditioned phenomena, access Nibbana. That would be first stage of enlightenment. But to get there, you're going to have to overcome all your doubt, all your belief in rites and rituals, and belief in self. And you have to have a pretty profound understanding of the truth of dukkha at that point. But it's possible. It's possible. This is not, this is not only for people who lived in the time of the Buddha to, to attain first stage of enlightenment. It happens these days too, if you practice. So, that's the, uh, that's the, uh, a nutshell, the journey in a nutshell. Believe me, that's a small nutshell too. But uh, that's, that's generally the journey. Uh, to progress beyond first stage, there's a, uh, a getting, uh, a refamiliarizing yourself with the path over and over and over again and reaccessing the unconditioned over and over again until there's some facility with that and then choosing to move on to uh, further stages of enlightenment, if you will, further letting go, a subtler letting go for a second stage, third stage, fourth stage. And these two are not uh, beyond reach. or They're not outside of the capacity of someone who understands the practice and who has strong determination and a lot of energy to, to practice. Possible. That's it. <laughs> so, uh, that there's a, a long description in chapter six of the stages of insight. In chapter five is a narrative as if a yogi was describing what they experienced uh, traversing this, uh, these stages of insight. So that's why it's a little bit, you know, you might want to, maybe we'll have to put a, a kind of a, uh, a second ribbon kind of around the chapter uh, five and six in the book and say, if you really want to read this, you have to kind of, you don't accidentally, you have to cut the ribbon and open to read this chapter, you know, <laughs> something like that, where you can read the first four chapters and it'll support you in practice and understanding. But if you want to go further than this, you're going to have to make another choice to really, uh, maybe we'll do it that way. We'll see what the publisher says. So any uh, comments? Questions? Could you say something about the role of teaching uh, samatha or jhana after the first stage and beyond? Could I say something about teaching the, the role, role of, of teaching? Yeah, because I know at the Mahasi Center, often after one has reached the first stage, then they encourage people to practice metta, uh, bhavana, and jhana. Um, yeah, in the Mahasi Center, some of the teachers do encourage students who have attained to first stage to practice more concentration practices. Uh, I'm not sure what the reasoning is behind that. Uh, I do know that the first two stages, first stage and second stage, are uh, the basis for those stages of enlightenment is purifying your sila, meaning purifying your uh, intentional activity. But the third stage and the fourth stage is through perfecting your concentration. So 
if you really want to move beyond the first two stages, then there will have to be a dramatic increase in concentration. That means continuity of mindful awareness. That's all it is. Continuity is going to have to pick up substantially. Uh, whereas in the, for the first two stages, it's for a momentary, you know, if there's a, if there's a temporary strong push in continuity, one can kind of push through and, and arouse that level of continuity to attain first and second stage. But in order to attain third stage, then it's reliant on that level of continuity happening all the time. Big jump, big jump. It's hard to reach first. If you reach first, it's easy to get to second. It's very hard to get to third. And fourth, well, I don't know. Have to ask somebody <laughs> else. <laughs> and I'm not claiming anything. But uh, from what I've heard, and that's what Mahasi Saida says, first age is difficult. Second is easy after first. Third is very difficult. And fourth, I, I don't know what that would involve. <clears throat> but if anything from all this, please, please get, the, get, get this part. It is possible. I, you know, enlightenment in this, this day and age for we people, we householders in the West, at least first stage is possible. Not beyond your reach. I don't know any of you, very few of you personally, what your practice is, but please don't think that it's impossible, that it's beyond my reach, or that it's, that it's uh, only for people at the time of the Buddha, or only for monks or nuns, or whatever. That's not true. That's not so. It's not. It really is, you know, with a good teacher and, you know, determination and energy and good paramis, uh, it's possible. Possible. Now, I can see time is, well, time is only ever running out, but. Any follow-up questions? Maybe we won't get to Chapter 7. Chapter 7 is about uh, what are called the 18 principal insights. The, the three principal insights are the insight into Anicca, impermanence, the insight into Dukkhas, unsatisfaction, the insight into Anatta. And then there's variations of those within the 18. Okay. But I ask the question here. Now, think about this. We've been talking about defilements earlier in the day. You know, those states of mind that cause suffering. And if we practice sila, or, you know, right speech, right action, we don't act out those transgressive defilements, and we, relieve, I mean, we get some relief from suffering. And if we practice samadhi, or concentration, we get a handle on our obsessive, or the, the defilements that are obsessing the mind. Even though we're not acting them out, they're still obsessing the mind. Still acting them out. And I mentioned earlier that those obsessive defilements can be kept at bay outside of the stream of the mind as long as you keep uh, kind of concentrated on your chosen object. But as soon as you stop, you kind of open the door and all the defilements can come back in. Now, what practice is going to 
prevent those defilements from ever coming into the mind. This is the development of insight, the development of understanding. To purify your speech and behavior will put aside the transgressive defilements. To purify your mind of the hindrances will put aside the obsessive defilements. But to purify your understanding is necessary to put aside what are called the anusia kalesis or the uh, latent defilements. Now, what is a latent defilement? Well, okay, so comment, the, the question is, what is a latent defilement? And the, the answer was, one that has not arisen. But think about this. In the moment, I just went through the progress of insight, right? And I said, now you're at this high equanimity, you know, where whatever arises in your mind, there's no defilement. You're mindful, you're aware. There's no defilement, there's no reactivity to anything that's happening. So there's no defilement happening in the present moment that you've got to get rid of. Any defilements that arose in the past, they're gone, you don't have to get rid of them. Any defilement that will arise in the future hasn't yet arisen. You don't have to get rid of that. So in this moment of mindful awareness, when the mind falls into the unconditioned, nirvana, which defilements are eliminated? There's none arising in the present moment. There's none arising from the past. And there's none arising in the future. But this is the key. I mean, the key. This is, this is not insignificant. This is going to tell you how to practice you know, which defilement is uprooted from the mind? It's kind of like the Vipassana koan. <laughs> okay. Now let me let me let me let me let me step back a little bit. In our ordinary life, we're kind of going around life and Things are happening and we see, we hear, we smell, we taste, we touch, we think, all kinds of stuff. But we don't get caught up in defilements right then, necessarily. But it just, we might, we might. But maybe it just passes, you know, we're, we're too busy lusting after this to get too caught up in our aversion to that. You know, so we're kind of like distracted by one, one defilement after another, so we just kind of move on. Right? But, all of those kind of unacknowledged potential defilements that you have in relation to what you've seen, smelled, tasted, touched, thought, felt, all of those potential defilements, are, they're just lying in the mind. There's no defilement actually there, but the object that you could have been averse to is still there. You know, you could recall a situation where you didn't get angry but if you thought about it, you could get angry. Or you could recall something in a catalog that you kind of passed through really quickly, just said, oh, I can't afford that right now, and just kind of went beyond. But now, you kind of look at it and say, God, I really would like that new shirt, shoes, whatever. And so, the defilement of desire could arise if conditions were there. So, Everything that we have seen, smelled, tasted, touched, thought, felt, unmindfully, is a time bomb in the mind. Everything is a time bomb in the mind. 
It is like a nest of potential defilements. And all it takes is some condition to go in there and kind of stir up the nest and we'll be suffering. Right? What? None and ignorance. There's a potential for all of them. There's a potential for ignorance. You know, we didn't, we didn't, it was because we didn't see it clearly. We didn't see that this object is anicca, nata, and dukkha. So it went into the mind as a, as a full object. We didn't see that it's just these anicca, nata, and dukkha. Because there was no insight. So we took it in. It's in the mind as a kind of a fully constructed person, thing, event, emotion, memory, plan, desire, whatever. It's all in there. It's not like in a storehouse, in a warehouse, and we're going to go find the right drawer and pull it out and say, okay, throw that one out. But the potential is there. So it is, the, it is these defilements that are uprooted from the mind. They haven't yet arisen. They didn't arise in the past. And once they're uprooted, they won't arise in the future. But it is the potential for this defilement to arise. is uprooted. And it's uprooted because we understand the nature of objects. It's the understanding that uproots the possibility of the mind falling into or getting caught in one of these defilements. You will not hear this in a, <laughs> in a Dharma talk in a, in a retreat, I don't think. Not too many. Yeah? Uh, microphone? Up back? So here's my question for application to that. Let's say you're looking for a retreat center in Hawaii. Look no further. (laughs) There are none. (laughs) Whatever. But let's say you are and you've come upon this amazing, beautiful, awe-inspiring place. And you have this sensation of, I like that. You know, I really like that. Dharma center. I mean, what I can see is a potential Dharma center. So then do you say pleasant, pleasant, pleasant and say, I'm not going to buy it because I like it and it's uh, suffering and it's the cause of suffering and it's, you know, or I mean, I I guess what I'm trying to say is where does the rubber hit the road on, on that teaching? Because do you say, okay, here's the partner. I mean, I'm going to make up a story because I don't know how you and Kamala met. But let's say you met Kamala. You didn't say unpleasant, unpleasant, unpleasant. I'm not going to get involved with her. <laughs> you, I'm guessing that you maybe said pleasant um, something. So how did do you understand what I'm saying? So in the actuality of desire, which might be to have a dharma center or to have a relationship that's dharma or whatever it is, how does this rubber hit the road there? Yeah. Thank you for taking the question. I've asked this in retreat before and it was quite a cackle. Quite a what? Well, it it was, it's quite a stirring thing because sometimes the teachers teach it as if they have no desire. You know, there's... Please don't be mistaken. Okay, I'm exaggerating. I'm not... I don't mean it quite like there's a sort of this aversion to desire, you know, almost it's a subtle statement underneath, like not um, 
embracing the actuality of whatever is. Yeah. I don't know. It's a subtle thing. It's not like anyone said anything so specific, but it's a subtle aversion to yeah. any kind of suffering. I think one of the. Uh, it's a great question. You know, I mean, and maybe we should ask this of all teachings. You know, where does the rubber hit the road? You know, like in my life. <laughs> you know, and try to get the answers because a lot of us are trying to live a very full and embodied uh, lay life in the West in 21st century Western culture. And we also want to be free. <laughs> Wrap your mind around that. Nevertheless, I think that the, the, the qualities of mind that most come to the forefront with practice, now with practice and with with some degree of commitment to practice and some understanding of practice uh, and some maturity in practice, the, qu- the qualities of mind that most come to the forefront are uh, the aspiration for liberation, which can feel or which can look from the outside a lot like desire for accomplishment or a desire for achievement or desire for attainment. And there's a huge difference between striving for enlightenment and aspiring to awaken. Huge. And you need to understand that. So I think that uh, with practice, we clarify our aspiration in practice and we refine the vehicle for, for doing that. And, and the vehicle for Realizing our aspiration is acting with wisdom and compassion in the world. We are human beings. You know, we live in the West within the context of our lifestyle. And you don't have to be, you don't have to go to, off to the monastery or the nunnery and become a monk and nun and renunciate and live in a cave in Burma or Tibet somewhere. You know, it's bring it into the lifestyle you live. I don't mean to smear a thin coating of Dharma pap on top of your, <laughs> your lifestyle, but I mean, take it in and let the Dharma infuse the way you live as a householder in the West in 21st century. Well, most of us here are living in America. And everybody's going to find their own way of how to do that. You know, but that's our challenge. That's our particular generation's challenge is to to embody the deepest understanding that we've realized in practice and to live it in the world. So, let me be perfectly honest with you. I have not uprooted desire from my mind. You know, and I'm not claiming to either. But I got plenty. You know, on the other hand, I see it a lot and I see how easy it is to shift from desire to aspiration with compassion. So it's like, okay, do that. I, I try to let that be my motivation. So, so it sounds like it I, com- comes back to intention then. Oh, yeah, definitely intention is and, key. And it's not so much that in the moment that you didn't experience desire, say, I'm going to, I hope you don't mind my using, since I don't have a relationship, I'll use you. <laughs> no, you won't, no, you won't move me. Don't, don't tell Kamala. No, I mean, I mean that when you're with some part, like you're, when you originally met Kamala, you felt some connection, some some affinity, some attraction, some. Wait. Was there, des- you know, maybe desire? Attraction, maybe, maybe? extra, extra. More than that. Huh? Affinity? Yes. 
okay. affection or all those feelings were there. And so you didn't ignore those. You no. still moved towards that connection, right? I mean, rather than saying, oh, I'm pleasant. Oh, I better watch out for this desire. No, you know no, no. I mean? Wait, wait. The Buddha, the Buddha didn't say avoid pleasant experience. Right. But be no. aware. Yeah, definitely be aware. For sure. So it wasn't blinding lust. Blinding light? <laughs> I, I don't, you know, I, I'm not sure it's possible with, with you know, advanced or with mature practice to fall into love. You know, I mean, that's really fall into attachment, fall into lust. I, I, I mean, I have a healthy respect for the power of, you know, delusion and, and desire, but uh, not with awareness. With awareness, I don't think it's possible. This one will come back to haunt me. <laughs> you forgot this was being taped. Yeah, I know. Going out to the wide world. Okay, okay, all you, uh, you know, you, you, you web web denizens out there. Who? Yeah, anybody who's gotten this far is going to know. <laughs> it's late in the day. Yeah. I've currently found myself in a position of understanding desire and the difficulties of the dukkha surrounding that. And I'm finding myself really attracted to what is termed non-being. Non-being. Non, well, it's just, oh, what can I say this? there's the attraction to being or there's the desire for being and yeah. there's a, then the opposite of that is yeah. the desire for non-being, which... Yeah. It's not in this case I'm referring to like non-contact and non-involvement with people and just, you know, hermiting. And I'm beginning to wonder if that's well, obviously, if you're doing it as a reaction, it's not healthy. But I'm confused around. It's a great way to avoid dukkha (laughs) by not contacting. So I'm a little confused. So the, the comment, you heard the comment is, you know, sometimes we get uh, sick and tired of indulging in the world and we want to kind of retreat for a while. Uh, there's, there's both the aversion to uh, the oppressive stimulation of, you know, involvement and entanglement. There's, that, that can be aversion. There can be a lot of understanding. It's just like, you know what? More of the same isn't better. You know, there can be a real profound understanding. It's like, all that this life of indulgence has to offer is more of the same. More of the same. And so that's more activity to get more stimulation, to get more stimulation, to get more activity, to get more stimulation. And along with it, the, the, you know, the equal share of the suffering that comes with it. And sometimes there's just this dawning realization. It's like enough is enough already. And while that may look a lot like aversion and let me get out of here, I'm going to go into a cave and hide out for a few months or I'm going on retreat or I'm heading off to Burma or whatever. It may, there may be some aversion in there. Uh, there can also be a lot of both understanding, letting go and renunciation and the wish to practice renunciation more. So don't, 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 don't dismiss that it's just being aversion. It's like, you know, that may be the doorway that, you know, maybe it's a version that will get you out of the rat race and into, well, 
the mind's rat race. <laughs> I don't know. But you know what I mean? To get, to get you into uh, uh, practice. You know, so I, I, would, uh, I would say congratulations. Yeah. Just as a, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to you in a minute, but just as a, a kind of a, a um, an exercise in uh, creativity. Think, if you can, of good examples of embodied renunciation in our culture. You know what? We don't have a lot of models. We don't have a lot of guides. We don't have a lot of roadmaps to how to live an active life of renunciation in our householder lifestyle in the West. We do not have that. Now, yeah, there are, there are monks and there are nuns, you know, and we could say, well, there's that. But no, I, I'm saying in a householder lifestyle, what does it, Jimmy Carter's? He's got he's got something on the ball, you know. Al Gore has got Al Gore is speaking to a big, the big picture of renunciation in his own way, although he doesn't live in it. Who? Nelson Mandela. I don't know his personal behavior too much, but you know there 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 are some, and I I mean, what did I read? Oh, I was just reading an article in the newspaper in Maui. Shopocalypse. Shopocalypse. You know, there's some guy going around the country now talking about shopping apocalypse. You know, he, he calls himself uh, Reverend Billy. You know, and it's, it's, really, it's really good. It's about how over, you know, consumption is just killing us. You know, it's bringing about, you know, the apocalypse as quick as anything else. And uh, it's interesting. Shopocalypse. Yeah. Anyway, so I think that that is the arena for us to look in our own practice. That's the place to look. Now, how, what would it look like if we were going to embody letting go in our speech, activity, and mind? What would it look like uh, you know, in your checkbook each month or your credit card bill each month? What would it look like in your, your uh, daily activities, your to-do list? Uh, what, would it, what would it look like in your list of things you want to accomplish in this life? How would, that, how would that change if you really took on the practice of renunciation as a householder? It's worth considering, you know, because we're the first generation in this culture to do it. So we have to, we have to create this for ourselves. It's getting close to the end of our time together. Um, we probably could find something to talk about for hours more. Did you mean the 18 principal insights and the three characteristics of the character? No. <laughs> and the three characteristics and the 24 links of dependent, I mean, 12 links of dependent origination and the 24 conditions of conditional. Yeah. Mm. Later. Invite me back next year. We'll do it again. Uh, I want to uh, thank you all for uh, sharing your energy. It's been really energetic and fun to kind of float this trial balloon of the Mahasi material a little bit. There's, of course, as you know, a lot more that we could discuss and get into. I hope it's been helpful. I know it's been entertaining. It certainly has been for me. 
uh, I'll take your comments and questions into my mind and probably answers will come out later uh, next week or in future talks or future times of presenting material like this maybe in the commentaries that we add to each of the chapters of the book but uh, again thank you for the invitation uh, Tony and others who've been responsible and for those of you who helped set up the uh, this place or any publicity or whatever you might have done now or in the past or maybe in the future and thank you all again for your practice that uh, at least made you curious enough to even want to come to hear uh, these teachings um, I've had fun I hope it's been helpful uh, and I cannot say when the book will be out I hope it's sometime soon <laughs> And uh, then, uh, Wisdom's expressed interest, and probably they would be the best publisher for it too. But we'll see. Six months? Definitely not. <laughs> About a year and a half, maybe. Uh, I'm not even thinking. I'm not thinking. Of, yeah, first short chapters. <laughs> Yeah. Who knows? I mean, we'll see. It's not over yet. We'll see how it all comes together. We may. We may have to do that. <laughs> yeah. You have to kind of report to your teacher and get a code key from the <laughs> internet. Chapter 5 will be on the internet if you want to read it. So, is there, is there, if, oh, let me just um, first uh, ask your forgiveness if I've said anything or acted in any way that's been kind of offensive or dismissive of <coughs> you or your conditions or beliefs or if I've harmed you in any way, uh, please understand it was totally unintentional uh, and that. Uh, Sometimes in my enthusiasm, I say things maybe a little carelessly or cut people off. I don't mean to harm anyone, but sometimes people do feel hurt or offended. And please accept my apologies for for doing that. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to be a good boy later. <laughs> I'll try to improve on that as time goes on. Thank you. Thank you.